And you can turn to Second Thessalonians. If you don't have a Bible with you today, you can feel free to grab one of the chairback Bibles that should be nearby in front of you, and you'll find that this morning's text on page 989. Today we're looking at verse 6 through 12, but to give it some immediate context, I want to start our reading in verse 5, and then pray for our time and We'll begin together. So hear now as God speaks to you once again through His perfect and powerful Word. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might, when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints, to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of His calling, He may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we thank You that Your Word speaks the truth to us. It reminds us of the penalty and the punishment that belongs to those who remain in sin and unbelief. The rest and blessedness that belong to those that have trusted in your testimony about your Son. So Father, help us to hear your word this morning with renewed eagerness, with attentiveness, that we might know that relief that you have given to us. Full freedom and forgiveness that's found in Jesus Christ. Help me to preach as you say I must, uh, with clarity and with courage, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. A couple of weeks ago, I had the joyful occasion to watch, for the first time in many years, a Two Towers movie, which is an installment in the Lord of the Rings series, and I was reminded the degree to which I love one particular scene that concludes that story. It ends with the forces of good uh, arrayed, and they've arrived at Helm's Deep, this fortress, this mountain fortress that they believe will keep them safe from the invading evil horde. Yet that horde comes, and soon it seems like evil is going to win. All hope seems to be extinguished. And as they're coming to the end, apparently, of the battle, the leaders of the good army, they're talking to one another largely about, how are we going to die honorably in this fight? And the valiant dwarf Gimli makes a simple comment. The sun is rising. And the reason that's important is because sometime before, the great wizard Gandalf had said, Look to my coming at first light on the fifth day. And here it is. First light on the fifth day. And soon breaking over the east with that coming sun is Gandalf marching forward with a massive army of reinforcements that suddenly means an arrival that changes everything in an instant. All hope was thought to be lost, and now it's completely restored. All the evil was apparently going to win, and now it's altogether crushed. 
And we turn this morning, yet again, in Paul's instruction to the Thessalonians, to think about another coming, another arrival, that likewise changes everything, the coming return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the subject that Paul has already talked about in his first letter, and is going to talk about now in his second letter. And so it's helpful to remember the situation as it stood at this moment in Thessalonica, If you don't know the story of this church, it was a small church. It was a young church in that port city of Thessalonica. It was an influential place, and Paul had planted the gospel there. He had preached the gospel immediately when he came into the city. Evidently, enough converts had come to faith in Jesus Christ to start a small church, but persecution and affliction had run the missionary team out of town after a few months of ministry. And so Paul began to pen letters to this church, wanting to encourage them, wanting to instruct them, largely to endure in the face of the affliction that Satan continued to throw their way. If you read through the letters in just one simple setting, it wouldn't take you that long. Just notice the number of times Paul's talking about affliction and persecution. For example, in the first letter, chapter 3, verse 2 and 3, he says, I want to establish you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions, For you yourselves know that we were destined for this. Don't be surprised, young church at Thessalonica, that you're suffering. It was always going to happen this way. And evidently, they had heeded Paul's exhortation because where we saw us last week, verse 4 of chapter 1 in the second letter, we find Paul boasting about the Thessalonians for your steadfastness and faith and all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you're enduring. And we said it last week, and it's important to even reemphasize, isn't it, this week, the nature of Paul's boast as altogether different than the kind of boasting that tends to belong to American churches in our time. Boasts that often sound like little more than boasting in large budgets, bigger buildings, more bodies, and increased baptisms. All he says is, I rejoice, I boast, I glory in your perseverance through persecution, your your steadfastness through incredible suffering. And he wanted them to know that that very steadfastness, that very perseverance was proof of God's righteous judgment and having admitted them already into the kingdom. So where we left off last week, you can glance back to verse 5 of chapter 1, where Paul says, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. And we said last week that whenever Scripture talks about God's righteous judgment, it's a judgment that contains two things. First, it contains vindication of His people and also destruction of His enemies. And we're going to see both of those things work themselves out into our text today. It's a text that gives us the simple theme of what you must know about God's righteous judgment, perhaps said differently, what God's righteous judgment means for you. What God's righteous judgment means for you. We'll see, first of all, the truth about retribution. Secondly, the hope of relief. And then thirdly, the prayer in verse 11 and 12 for resolve. But before we get to the truth about retribution, I want you to notice how all of Paul's instruction centers on pivots around a key event in the work of Jesus Christ, namely His return. Look down again at verse 7 at the end into verse 8, where Paul is talking about when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire. That word revealed is just 
simply the word apocalypse. It's the same word that's used to start the first verse of the Bible's final book. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the second coming of Jesus Christ is an apocalypse. It's a revelation. It's an unveiling. And you'll notice just in those simple words, three important prepositional phrases. So you see, first of all, he is going to come. Jesus is. He's going to be revealed from heaven. So kids, recognize that's where Jesus is right now. He's seated at the Father's right hand in heaven, ruling and reigning. And a time is going to come, we saw already in the first letter, when the voice of the Father will summon the Son to return to earth. So earth is going to be his destination point. Heaven is going to be his departure point. But you see, it's not going to be a, a quiet coming. He's already said that in 1 Thessalonians. Nor is it going to be a lonesome coming. He's going to come with his mighty angels. Or maybe a better translation is with the angels of his might. We don't know how many angels will surround Jesus when he returns. But surely, because we know he's the Lord of hosts, he's the God of angel armies, it's going to be a lot of angels that fills up the sky when Jesus returns. And that third and final phrase is quite important for what we want to look at today. He's going to return from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Oftentimes when fire accompanies a divine revelation, it's a a revelation is going to be one of glory, it's one of holiness, it's one of righteousness and judgment and, and purity. And it's actually here in this passage, fulfillment of an age-old prophecy from Isaiah chapter 66, which declared, For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and His chariots like the whirlwind to render His anger and fury, and His rebuke with flames of fire, for by fire will the Lord enter into judgment. As that judgment, now we want to think about the truth about retribution. Glance back up to verse 6. We're told, God indeed considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. So I want to ask a series of questions, three particular questions, in this first section as we consider the truth about God's retribution. The first of which is, what's the motivation for God's retribution? What motivates the judgment that's coming? Well, it's clear there that God considers it just. Kids, that's a way of the text saying God is fair. He's righteous. He's perfect. He's pure. This is what His enemies deserve. As students, you may have experienced a time recently when uh, you thought even in your own mind or perhaps even uttered to your parents, this isn't fair. Well, no one's ever going to say that to God at the last day. It's going to be just the judgment that falls. And it's a speaking about this judgment, you'll notice with that verb to repay, which actually more properly means just payback. So kids, you might have had something go wrong in your life recently. You might have experienced some kind of a hardship and there's welled up within you this desire to pay someone back for the wrong that was done to you. Well, we know what Scripture tells us is that desire for payback is one, of course, that belongs to God alone, as Romans chapter 12 says. Do not avenge one another, but trust yourselves to the wrath of God, for he declares, vengeance is mine. So the motivation for his retribution is his justice. He's going to afflict the afflictors. He's going to punish the persecutors. He's going to try the troublers. And we don't know exactly what these afflictions were that the Thessalonians faced. You have something of an idea about it from Acts chapter 17. 
Certainly, a rough outline would say that Satan was throwing his schemes against the church using societal and cultural pressures to bring pain, to bring hardship upon the Thessalonians because they had trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's telling them that a day is coming when all of those who currently stand against you, I will stand over in judgment. Which leads to the second question. Well, who will receive God's retribution? One of the greatest hymn writers of the English language, certainly probably the most prolific, is a man named Charles Wesley. And sometime in the middle of his hymn writing career, he came across a hymn written by another hymn writer named John Sinek. And that hymn moved Wesley so much and affected his soul so deeply that he decided he was going to perfect it a little bit. He was going to you know, take out this verse, add this verse, adjust a few phrases in the stanzas that Sinek had already written. And, and that hymn has come down to us in a century since. It's still in our hymn book even today called, Lo, He Comes with Clouds Descending. And it's a tune that some of you would know. It's words that some of you might have sung in years past. But the second verse has just a simple phrase that is what I remember most from that hymn, where it speaks about Christ's arrival, bringing people to wail deeply, as it says, deeply wailing, deeply wailing, for they the true Messiah shall see. So when Christ comes, not everyone's going to welcome Him. Some will wail on account of His arrival, and notice who they are according to verse 8. In flaming fire, Christ will inflict Vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word vengeance even underscores the justice of God and His retribution because it simply means from justice. It's the idea of the perfect and pure standards of a particular judge being meted out on people who have committed the crime. What's the crime here? upon which the vengeance comes and is inflicted. Well, you notice he has apparently two groups of people in mind, those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's possible that what Paul has in mind, even with those final phrases in verse 8, is one group of people looked at from two perspectives. But he actually uses, in the original language reflected here in the ESV translation, is the same article twice. It seems like he's got actually two distinct groups of people in mind. Those who don't know God, therefore those who haven't heard the gospel preached to them, and those that have heard the gospel preached, and they don't obey it. And Paul's already addressed that first group. If you know the letter to the Romans in your Bible well, chapter 1 tells us that they haven't heard the gospel, but they're still without excuse because they have suppressed the truth and their unrighteousness and their sinfulness. And then there's those that have heard the gospel, but they haven't obeyed it. I wonder if you know the God of Scripture, the only Creator and Redeemer, the Lord of the universe, the thrice holy God who is exalted in the highest heavens, He who is three and one, He who is spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable. In His being, He's wisdom, power, holiness, goodness, justice, and truth. Do you know this God? Have you heard the good news? Have you obeyed it? The text says. Do you know that there is an obedience that belongs to the gospel? You must hear, repent, and believe. Not just to hear the good news, you're to do something in response to the good news. And we know exactly what that response looked like at Thessalonica. 
If you flip back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, Paul rejoiced in how the Thessalonians had obeyed the gospel because he says, You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, verse 10, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. That's what it means to obey the gospel, to turn from your sin. Trust in Jesus Christ, who died for sinners, was raised for sinners, rose and ascended to rule, and is soon to come back for His people. What motivates God's retribution? His justice. Who will receive God's retribution? Those who don't know God and those who don't obey God. Or what are the consequences of this retribution? Look at verse 9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. We had an eventful morning in the wee hours of life at the Stone House yesterday. It was sometime in the five o'clock hour that Emily came and told me there's a copperhead on our front porch. So I took my shovel and crushed the head of the serpent. 45 minutes passed by, and she said, there's another copperhead on the front porch. So I took my shovel again and crushed the head of another serpent. My coming meant destruction, but it was destruction unto a momentary death. That's altogether different than the kind of destruction that belongs to Christ's coming. You see, verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of what? Eternal destruction that knows no end, that knows no limit, that goes from everlasting to everlasting, God's judgment meted out upon those who don't know Him, those who don't obey Him. To underscore the horror that belongs to such retribution, it's away, you see that end of verse 9, away from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of His might. It's in the presence of the Lord, it's in the glory of His might, that we find light, that we find goodness, that we find compassion, that we find forgiveness, that we find blessedness, that we find rest. Therefore, to be apart from all that means to be in the darkness. It means to be in the place of everlasting, eternal, unquenchable fire, what the Lord Jesus Christ Himself calls hell. That's what consequences belong to God's retribution. That's the truth of His retribution. What about the hope? Of relief. Because his coming is not just the destruction of his enemies. His coming is also the vindication of his people. Look at verse 7. Paul promises that God will grant relief to you who are afflicted as well to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed. You know, relief isn't it a common human desire? So many of you are surely in here today longing for relief from some degree of difficulty. Students, it's why you look forward with expectation and eagerness to summer break as it gives you relief from your studies. That's why many employees and workers love the relief of a three-day weekend. That's why even people with a chronic ailment, chronic pain, even if it just disappears for a day, long for such relief. I do hope I, even some of you might know that a well-kept Lord's Day gives rest and relief from all the world's troubles and trials. The word here for relief in the original language, it pictures a bowstring that's stretched about as tight as you possibly can, taut with tension. And then eventually it gets relaxed and things loosen. And Paul's saying that's going to happen 
and the experience of afflicted and persecuted Christians. Because he's not talking about here about that tightness, that tautness that belongs to ordinary toil in the world underneath the curse. This is peculiarly related to that harm, that pain, that pressure that belongs to affliction and persecution. And when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, all of those who are afflicted, all of those who are suffering, all of those who are struck down, things will now begin to find rest. And it's not just the joy of rest and relief. You'll see in verse 10, there are two purposes in Christ's return for His people. Notice what we're told. When Christ comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all those who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. So you see, there's a twin purpose to Christ's coming. First, he says, to be glorified in his saints. And again, preposition is important. It's not glorified by his saints, it's glorified in his saints. Because the idea is, of course, when Jesus Christ returns, his people, those whom he has chosen, those whom he has called, those whom he is sanctifying even now, will fully and finally, perfectly be reflecting his image to the world. We'll receive a glorified body just as his body is glorified. This will be our glorification, reflecting his glory to the rest of the world, but lest we think, of course, His coming is about us, primarily a second purpose, isn't it? To be marveled at among all who have believed. Albert Einstein once said, he who can no longer pause to wonder, pause to marvel, is as good as dead. Doesn't it belong to, again, the normal human condition to marvel at things? It certainly belongs to the normal Christian condition that you've been awakened to Jesus Christ, awakened to awe at who He is in the fullness of His splendor, His beauty, His majesty, His power, His glory, and His grace. I wonder if you marveled at anything this week. Some of you surely probably marveled at sports games yesterday, whether you realized it or not. Some of you may have understandably marveled at your young children doing something rather marveling. Or perhaps maybe you, along the way this week, marveled at remembering Christ is on the way for His people. And there is nothing better than seeing the King. You know, I remember being in a small group many years ago, and one of the households in that small group was this young couple that had just gotten married. And I think the first time they visited the group, someone in the group that had been there for a number of years by that point leaned over to me and said, look at her, meaning the, the new bride. And he said, doesn't she look like a newlywed? She just can't keep her eyes off her husband. And that's the glory of the church, the bride of Jesus Christ, ravished in the love and the beauty and the glory, the splendor, the majesty of the Savior. We can't keep our eyes off him when he returns. That's that return that leads to Paul's prayer. A hope of relief causes him, as you might expect in Paul's letters, to local churches to get to the point of prayer with the prayer for resolve. Notice verse 11 through 12. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good, every work of faith by His power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Your students, you notice that Paul's linking verse 11 And the prayer that follows to what he's just said, because he begins with this phrase, you notice beginning verse 11, to this end. Well, what's that end? 
Well, you see, he's just mentioned Christ's glory. And you'll see later on in verse 12, he's talking about that we would now glorify Jesus Christ in our life. So in many ways, what he's praying for is that our life presently would increasingly reflect the life that is to come. The life here on earth would increasingly look like the life that belongs to God's saints in heaven. And you'll see he's got two particular points for his prayer, the first of which is about worthiness, that you'd be worthy of his calling. That doesn't mean that the Thessalonians weren't already worthy, as God had in his divine grace and mercy chosen them, counted them worthy by faith in Jesus Christ. No, what he's simply saying is that they would walk worthy. They would live in a manner worthy according to their calling. It's as though what Paul is praying for here is that God would shorten the gap, narrow that space between who they once were, who they should be, and who they will be, wanting to help them walk worthy of their calling in Jesus Christ. But it's not just about worthiness. It's about work, every resolve for good, every work of faith by His power being fulfilled. When Jonathan Edwards, a famous New England preacher, was 18 going on 19, he was pastoring this small a Presbyterian church in New York City. And he was at a time where many 19-year-olds tend to be of, of personal crisis and future life in the Lord, wondering exactly how to best serve the king. And he, he wanted to have some kind of an anchor or some type of a dedicated path to serve the Lord. And so as many people had done at that time in the 18th century, he took his diary out and began to write a series of resolutions about the kind of Christian, the kind of pastor he longed to be. And one recent biographer said of these resolutions that he directed them toward plugging every gap that would allow distraction from what he saw as his only worthy activity, namely to glorify God. You have resolutions, don't you? The text here saying in verse 11, fill every resolve for good. It could be translated also as every desire for good. But you might be resolved for a particular body type. You might be resolved for a particular diet. Resolved for a particular relationship. Resolved for a particular prosperity and pleasure. Resolved for a kind of retirement. The Christian life is about resolutions, resolutions, you see, for good and every work of faith by His power, which is important to note because we're called to resolve ourselves to work hard for the Lord. We're called to strive earnestly, and this is not just a striving in His or our own power, I should say, but it's according to His power. You'll see at the end, verse 12, it's according to the grace of our God in our Lord Jesus Christ. You've never reached the proper point in understanding life in Jesus Christ until you can add to it that qualifying phrase, according to God's grace in His Son, Jesus Christ. I will strive and labor according to God's grace. I will work and pray according to God's grace. I will watch and wait according to God's grace. It's the prayer for resolve. This is what God's righteous judgment means for you. Depending on what you do with Jesus Christ, it'll mean retribution or relief. If it means relief, it means now, presently, resolve as you labor according to His grace. I think it was about 10 years ago that I had to read a lot of sermons by an old preacher named Christopher Love. 
It was said that he was converted at the age of 14. He had heard evidently a stunning and sobering sermon. And Love's wife later said, God met with him and gave him such a sight of his sins and his undone condition that he returned home with a hell in his conscience. And eventually that conscientious struggle led him to the heaven that's found in Jesus Christ. And one thing that's important to know, because you see this actually in Love's ministry, it tends to be the way in which a person is converted, particularly a pastor, the way in which a church leader is converted tends to kind of be the ordinary shape of how they minister and pastor in the church. The way in which you were converted tends to be perhaps an ordinary way in which you think about God's work in the world. A hell was in his conscience, eventually leading him to the heaven that's found in Jesus Christ. So perhaps then it's not surprising that Christopher Love's most famous volume is a series of sermons that were titled Hell's Terrors. He said, I say this, that sermons of terror have done more good upon unconverted souls than sermons of comfort have ever done. Sermons of hell have kept many out of hell. And what I want to do as we begin to close is meditate on two things, the first of which is somewhat similar to what love is saying there, how Christ's coming demands an examination of your heart. Because, of course, you can't escape the reality here that there is an either-or nature to God's judgment. You'll either be banished or you'll be blessed. you either find His retribution or you'll find His relief. There are those who don't know God and those who have heard the gospel and not obeyed it. Some of you perhaps have been in churches for many years, even decades, and have presumed upon God's kindness in your life, but you've never actually truly turned from your sin and trusted in Him. You have no resolve for good, no desire for works of faith by His power, no patient longing and waiting and watching for the Son's return. Surely it ought to give you some degree of horror to recognize that the Lord Jesus Christ himself says when he returns, he's going to separate sheep and goats. And many people will say to him on that day, Lord, Lord, look at all that we did in your name. And he says, depart from me unto eternal destruction away from my presence and the glory of my might because I don't know you. An honest examination of your heart is necessary in light of God's righteous judgment. But it also calls us, doesn't it, secondly and finally, Christ's coming urges a reorientation of our hearts, or you might say a new orientation of our hearts. If you read through the letters to 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, what you'll find is that this is a young, young church, and Paul clearly thought it was utterly essential and quite central even to their life in Jesus Christ currently to know that Jesus was going to return at the end of the age. I wonder what degree of, of prominence Christ's coming has in your life. That reorientation of which I speak in your heart is one in which the world calls you always to look back. And Lord Jesus Christ is calling you to look ahead. The world and sin is always calling you to look down. And He's always calling you to look up. Maybe it's striking you to realize that one of the New Testament's strongest teachings on the nature of God's retribution is actually a teaching that is directed to Christians. Why can you find comfort and hope in the midst of all of your suffering? Because there is a time coming when God is going to make all things new. 
when all the sad things are going to become untrue, there is a time coming when Jesus will arrive and make it all right. When was the last time you thought in that way about the Lord Jesus' return? Praying earnestly, yearning and longing that he would arrive even this day. And if he arrived this day, what would the truth about God's righteous judgment mean for you? Will it be an arrival unto your retribution? His retribution upon your sin? Or his glorious relief that he gives you in Jesus Christ? Because you've trusted in him. And you know that blessedness belongs now to you forever. So may we then resolve, with all of his power, with all of his grace, to work for him while we wait hoping ever, always, that he will come soon. The Lord Jesus revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and in flaming fire. Let's pray. Father, it's always a sober and and serious thing to recognize that judgment belongs to sin. That your judgment is terrifying and it's one that is horrible to even think about. And yet it's just and righteous. Father, may its truth convict those in this room that don't know you, that haven't obeyed you. May its truth comfort those who do look to you in faith and trust. And we pray, of course, that you would hasten the coming of your son. That the day of his dawning would arrive ever so soon. And we pray it in his precious name. Amen.